This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 8th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. When the Federal Reserve governors meet next week, it's not clear what they can do. That from Jerry Jordan, former head of the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank, and Jerry O'Driscoll, former vice president at Citigroup and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. In effect, they argue the Fed has effectively painted itself into a corner. We spoke during the Cato Institute's monetary conference in November. I'll start with you, Jerry Jordan. Why do you argue that uh, the Federal Reserve actions that might or might not be taken in December uh, are irrelevant to uh, what we should expect with respect to inflation? Well, the actions they're able to take now are only on the liability side of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, meaning the interest rates that they pay on commercial banks on the reserve deposits and on a collateralized borrowing from commercial banks. And neither of those interest rates are connected to anything else. The only thing that is certain when the Federal Reserve raises the interest rate, it pays banks and reserves, is that the budget deficit goes up. There's a transfer of money from taxpayers to the stockholders of banks from taxpayers to the government-sponsored uh, enterprises like Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae, and there's a transfer to mutual funds around the world, foreign as well as domestic. So increasing the budget deficit is not normally thought of as being a restrictive monetary policy. Taking taxpayers' money and giving it to a whole lot of people in the financial sector is not thought of as being restrictive. And it's not clear that raising those interest rates paid to all those people does anything to the national economy. All right. So how do we get here to this place where paying reserves on bank, de- paying interest on uh, bank deposit reserves, what, how do we get to that? You, uh, you created a lot of reserves. And in the process of creating a lot of reserves, you, the Fed also did something else, which is they stopped uh, having any short-term securities on their balance sheet. So uh, this left them with no direct way to conduct monetary policy as they used to, which would be supposing they wanted to raise interest rates, which is the cycle we're in now, they would have sold short-term treasury obligations and put up with pressure on interest rates and eventually on Fed funds rate, and then they would have tightened. Uh, They don't have that mechanism anymore. Yeah, it's probably important to wind back to before the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. The way the Federal Reserve operated at that time was on the asset side of their balance sheet by buying and selling securities. And the commercial banking system was reserve constrained. They didn't really hold excess reserves. So on any given day, there was a short run excess supply of reserves or an excess demand for reserves. The Federal Reserve's trading desk in New York would step in and either add or subtract to the total amount. And and that way, they could control the federal funds rate, the overnight interbank rate. With the quantitative easing uh, after the global financial crisis, there's this gigantic multi-trillion dollar surplus amount of reserves um, that means that on a given day, they cannot operate on an excess demand, excess supply basis. So they switched to operating on the liability side of their balance sheet, merely the interest rate they pay on borrowings. And they don't do any open market operations. They neither buy nor sell securities anymore. So what will be driving inflation uh, that has already occurred uh, recently and is expected next year? What are the drivers? In this new world, the growth of the money supply is determined strictly by bank lending. 
bank lending has not been very rapid in recent years because of things like Congress's Dodd-Frank legislation, by regulatory controls, by international agreements that have all constrained especially big banks, and there's been no new small bank startups. Job creation historically comes from small businesses. Something like 80% of the new jobs come from new businesses, small businesses, and the loans they get to get started up and to grow come from small banks. Small banks are very constrained now, and there's no new small banks. All of that's because regulation. What you would start to get if there's going to be reforms to Dodd-Frank legislation, to supervisory concerns by uh, capital ratios requirements and, and other possible things that could be done, more new small banks are going to be formed, more loans are going to be made to people who want to create small businesses, grow small businesses. More loans means more deposits, more deposits means more money growth. That's how you get inflation. If, if, if I can add to this. Uh Dodd-Frank put a lot of restrictions on lending, as uh, Jerry Jordan just mentioned, and also put in a lot of new capital requirements so that bankers increasingly telling me is their capital constrained because um, the, the way they have to hold capital against what are viewed as risky loans, like small business loans, makes it unprofitable for them to do this. Now, one thing that would help is if the yield curve, that is, the the difference between interest rates on short-term obligations and long-term operations steepened, then banks would do more lending. Well, in the wake of the Trump election, for a variety of reasons, the yield curve has steepened. So they've actually, market forces are now making it more attractive for banks to lend, uh, notwithstanding the issues that Jerry raised, which is that regulators seem to not want the, there to be new banks. They don't want competition. So uh, when you talk about capital requirements for banks, uh, uh, of the limited amount of looking into that that I've uh, done, it seems like just this weird Byzantine system of you've got to hold this amount of capital against these uh, debt instruments that you've you've got uh, yes. on your balance sheet. And th th there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to, to why you hold this versus that. Some are far more risky, and yet you don't have to carry any capital it's, it's against them. It's central planning of credit allocation. That's what it is. And you're right. They still say that sovereign debt has no risk, despite the uh, experience of the last few years. And, and some lending that's very sound, that's fully collateralized, banks are still told they have to hold collateral, I mean, excuse me, capital against it. And that just that makes it less attractive for them to do that lending. Going forward, to the extent that the uh, appointments that a President Trump could make, is there, is there any way to get out of this? I mean, presumably, a reform to Dodd-Frank might uh, be beneficial uh, in the longer term, but well, the Federal Reserve was already moving with, uh, together with other supervisory agencies to alter the rules, the regulations that would allow smaller banks to be exempt from the owner's parts of Dodd-Frank simply by holding a sufficient amount of capital. That would also allow people to start up new banks as long as they're well capitalized and they get exempt from a lot of the regulation. A way to think about what happened with Dodd-Frank and the too big to fail was that we had maybe a half a dozen gigantic banking companies that they were worried that if one of those were to fail, then a bunch of others would fail and take the whole economy down. So they erected a structure of supervision and regulation to prevent that from happening. That was the intent. And in the process, killed all the small banks. Right. 
And now they're trying to say, well, that was really a dumb idea to kill all the small banks because then you kill small businesses, you kill, you kill job creation, job growth. So they were already moving to create exemptions to that. That will now be accelerated no matter what they do to Dodd-Frank. And once that process gets underway, it really doesn't matter what the big banks do, whether they grow or expand. They didn't lend to small businesses in the first place. Yeah, uh, Dodd-Frank uh, essentially uh, was a statue that said the banking regulators will write rules to accomplish this goal. So if you can get the banking regulators to lighten up, you don't have to change Dodd-Frank. You just motivate the banking regulators to recognize the harm they've been doing to the economy for legitimate reasons in the beginning and to loosen up the rules. That's cold comfort. Well, we have a regulatory state. I mean, most, most activities are governed by agencies writing rules. Give me a sense of the role of small banks, because I think that you said that they that big banks don't lend to small business. Give me a picture of, of the kind of uh, operations that small banks are engaged in. Well, t historically, new business startups come from people borrowing against their home, home equity loans or uh, refinancing, second mortgages, uh, borrowing against the farm, against the another business they have. That's how you capitalize and get a small business going. Big banks are not interested in that business. Small banks are. And de novo, brand new banks just incorporated, they want to get some loans on the book. So in addition to some consumer lending, they primarily do small business lending. They know the people. They have a personal relationship with them. Uh, the credit uh, uh, review process is different than it would be to go to, to one of the gigantic New York banks or one of the international banks because the local banker is a member of the local community and he knows whether somebody's got a good shot at this new business, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a hair salon, whatever kind of a business they want to start up. And so new banks starting up, new banks making those kinds of, of loans in order to grow has been an engine for job creation for decades. And that was killed by the reaction to the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Is regulatory reform of the, of the stripe that you're talking about more important than whoever uh, Donald Trump might choose to head the Federal Reserve? Well, I think that they, they interact. They say people is policy. No, but the right people are more likely to put in good policies. It does matter. The idea doesn't matter who's in charge. You want somebody in there that recognizes what we've been talking about and basically calls people in at the institution, be, be it the Fed or a different banking regulatory agency, and says, look, we've got to keep banks sound, but we've got to make it possible for there to be lending. Yeah, the mindset in the executive office, the president of the United States, does permeate the entire regulatory apparatus, including the Federal Reserve. At the moment, all of the five governors of the Federal Reserve Board were appointed or reappointed by President Obama. There's two vacancies. President Trump, within just a couple of years, will appoint four of the seven Federal Reserve governors. If they are reflecting a pro-growth attitude, create jobs, create prosperity, and that that's what they see the, uh, the purpose of the central bank, its mission, is going to be, then you're going to put into context the regulatory supervisory decisions 
as not safety and soundness of banks, but job creation and growth. That will then go out to the Federal Reserve Banks and their approach to supervision regulation. It will go into the Controller of the Currencies Office. It will go into the FDIC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, Commodities Exchanges, all of the other supervisory authorities saying, our mission is not simply to have very, very safe banks that never um, go broke. Our job is to facilitate job creation. If somebody took the attitude in the airline industry that we've had in the banking industry, it's like, <laughs> well, we want to have no more plane crashes, therefore planes will stay on the ground. Well, it would be successful, but there would be no more air travel. And so we need an attitude in financial regulation that says safety and soundness is important, but it doesn't dominate. And what we've done is, in recent years is we've allowed this prudential supervision, they call it, the safety and soundness of banks to dominate monetary policy considerations. Yeah, let me give you an example from another area, and this is regardless of how you feel about border security and immigration. But I was just down in Texas and I was told a story the day after the election. Border Patrol started tightening up border security down and customs down on the border the day after. Jerry Jordan is a former head of the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank, and Jerry O'Driscoll is a former vice president at Citigroup and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.